It is a pleasure to be with you, especially as we are wrapping up this series that we're calling Centered, in which we're looking at what does it really mean to be centered in a fast-paced world? What does it mean to have our lives established on something that is rock solid, that allows us to engage with our culture around us, with wisdom, with peace, with patience, with insights? That's really what we've been talking about as we've been looking at this book of Colossians. And as we come to the end of this study, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to once more receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for the journey that you have brought us on through this book. That this letter written 2,000 years ago is still so relevant today. It helps us to understand who the center is, what it means to live life walking in step with you. And so, Lord, as we once more come before your word, we ask that you would indeed give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh... As a young Christian, one of the things that I often wrestled with after coming to faith is, so what difference does the Christian faith make now? And the reason why I ask that question is because one of the things we've seen throughout the book of Colossians is that unlike the other world's religions, what makes Christianity so different is this idea that God has already done everything that we require in order to receive forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. That unlike the other world's religions that tell us that it's about doing certain practices and obeying certain laws and certain commandments, that it's really about our moral effort in order to get into heaven. What Christianity says is, no, heaven has been given to you as a free gift through what Jesus has done on your behalf. And that's a beautiful gift. It's an incredible thing that God has given. But, but the question that I wrestled with is, okay, yeah, but now what? What difference does knowing that make in my daily life and in how I live? And the reason I wrestled with that is because I saw a lot of Christians treating their faith almost as if it was just divine fire insurance, okay? That it was their get-out-of-hell-free card. It's like, oh, I believe in Jesus, and I'm saved and forgiven, so I can do whatever I want. I can live life however I choose, and on the one hand, they're professing to love Jesus and to follow Jesus and to be uh, someone who, who cares about what Jesus has to say, and yet they live their lives in ways that just don't really represent Jesus. And I had this like sneaking suspicion that there had to be something there. There had to be something more than just knowing that my eternity is secure. There had to be something within Christianity that shapes my daily life. Something I can look to not only for my eternal security, but for wisdom today, to know how to live in this world and, and how to navigate things like relationships and careers and priorities and budgets. Is there any way that knowing Jesus and walking with him actually shapes my daily life? A couple of years ago, I read a book by David Kinneman. He's the president of the Barna Research Group. And what he did is he actually surveyed Christians uh, ages 18 up to 35, but specifically those who still considered themselves Christians but had walked away from the church. He wanted to know why did they walk away from the church? What, what was it that, that drove them away? And, and he published his findings in a book called You Lost Me. And here's one of the things that he says. I found this really interesting. He says, one of the significant forms of disconnection that plagues this generation of students is the separation of faith from their real lives. The faith too many of them have inherited is a lifeless shadow of historic Christianity. 
I think the next generation's disconnection stems ultimately from the failure of the church to impart Christianity as a comprehensive way of understanding reality and living fully in today's culture. Let me say that again. I think the next generation's disconnection stems ultimately from the failure of the church to impart Christianity as a comprehensive way of understanding reality and living fully in today's culture. See, what I was expressing as a young Christian and what many Christians uh, today are expressing is this desire that their faith would be something more than just fire insurance. They want to know that while, yes, my eternity is secure, what difference does this faith make in my life? How can this faith actually change not just me, but my relationships? How can this faith reshape not just me, but my society and my culture? They're actually longing for a picture of what transformed life is all about. They want to know how do I do that? What does that look like? Which again is why I think this book of Colossians is so wonderfully relevant to us. Because although it was written 2,000 years ago, it speaks to this very desire. Paul has spent two chapters of Colossians talking about the free gift of salvation that we have in Jesus. He's made it abundantly clear that if you want to know God and know what he's like and have a relationship with him, God has made that known to you through Christ. You can come to know him. You can know that he loves you. You can know that your future is secure. But then in chapter 3, he, he makes a turn and he talks about, so how does that relationship now transform how we live in our world? And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open up with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, again, uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to go ahead and use the pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, take that pew Bible. Let that be our gift to you, because we want you studying God's word together with us. But here in uh, Colossians chapter 3, as I was saying, Paul has already laid out the, the beautiful free gift of grace that we've been given through Jesus. But he makes a turn here at the beginning of this chapter. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what Paul is saying there is he's saying, Look, if you have a relationship with Jesus... If you know that your salvation is secure, then set your mind on things that are above. He says, it's really about, he's like, if you have that relationship, this is what is, it's all about in terms of putting that, of living out that relationship and putting what Jesus has taught you into practice. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. He says, look to Jesus. Because it's as you look to him, it is going to transform your daily life. But the question then is, okay, so how? What does that even mean to set our mind on things that are above and not on earthly things? How do we do that? And this is why I love this chapter, because Paul gets so incredibly practical with the rest of what he says. He uses um, a, a several very powerful images to talk about how we set our mind on things above. He starts first with this image. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked 
when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He says, you got to put these things to death. you got to bury them. That there's ways in which we are living which, because of our relationship with Jesus, they, don't, they just don't fit anymore with what we're called to do and who we are called to be. But what I find really interesting about this list and, and what many commentators have noted is that there's one thing that Paul mentions in this list that at first seems really out of place with the others. And here's what I mean. Take a look for a second at verse 5. He lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. Many commentators looking at that list have noted that when Paul uses these words in his other letters, what those all relate to, what they all have to deal with, is your intimate relationships, your romantic relationships, your sex life, basically. He says, you got to put these kinds of things away, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire. Evil desire. Then they've noted that when you uh, look down to verse 8, He also then says, and put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and don't lie to each other. And many commentators have noted, and this is actually dealing with our social relationships. So our relationships with other people and the ways that we talk to one another and how we treat each other and what we say and what we don't say. But they've noted that in the middle of this list, there's one thing that kind of stands out. It's just a little odd, and it's the word covetousness. Verse 4 about our sexual relationships. The second uh, uh, list is really about our social relationships. Covetousness, what does that have to do with anything? Covetousness is, is wanting something that doesn't belong to you, right? Which one of these is not like the others? See, I learned that from Sesame Street. It's a good Bible study-like tip. And they've noticed that this doesn't seem to fit until Paul kind of unmasks it. He says, put away covetousness, which is idolatry. Put away covetousness, which is idolatry. See, when we think about idols today, as modern people, I think we we wrestle with this. Because when we think of idols, we think of, you know, statues and pagan religions, Poseidon and Zeus, and so on and so forth. But idolatry to Paul means something much, much more. And in fact, I would argue that this is probably the most important point for understanding those two lists. You see, Greek is an interesting language in that respect. Often in English, when we want to make a point, it's linear, like we do all of our subpoints, and then our final point is at the end. But in Greek, they often put the most important thing in the middle as the hinge, the thing that relates these two other things. And what Paul is saying is he's saying idolatry is the hinge. Because idolatry is so much more than simply bowing down to statues. Idolatry is about the inner posture of your heart as it relates to the thing that you desire most. Idolatry is really about the inner posture of your heart as you relate to the thing that you desire most. That actually is what Paul has in mind when he talks about idolatry. He's saying that all these dysfunctional relationships that you have with each other, all these ways in which you are mistreating your fellow human beings, it's all the overflow of some sort of dysfunctional worship at your core. It's the overflow of some dysfunctional worship at your core. It's something is going on in your heart. There is an idol that you are worshiping. And because that is off, everything else is just chaotic. It's out of joint. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. In fact, this is something that Christian thinkers have acknowledged down through the ages. I love what Martin Luther says in his comment on the first commandment in his large catechism. First commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And this is what Luther says. He says, a God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I've often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that makes both God and idol. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. What Luther is saying is he's saying whatever you look to for your security, your significance, and your self-worth, that is the thing that you actually worship. That is the thing that in your heart of hearts you build your life upon. And we try to dress it up and we wrap ourselves in it almost like it's a garment, not realizing that what it's there, that although it all looks good on the surface, it covers over a rot and a decay within our, inner, within our souls, within our inner lives, that ultimately overflows in our relationships with other people. And I think that these two lists are very appropriate for our world today, because I think the two things that we worship most are sex and money. And that first list is all about sex. And I think we worship, you know, romantic relationships. I think we love to be in love. I think we worship phys uh, physical pleasure and beauty and sexual allure. But when we do that, what we end up doing is we end up turning other people into objects for our own self-gratification. We bounce from one relationship to another, trying to fill that void. And if a person just can't do that for us, we ditch them to the curb until we find another partner. The other thing that we worship is power and success, and money, and wealth. And I think the second list is very, very appropriate, where he's talking about things like anger, and wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk, and lies. Ladies and gentlemen, if we are worshiping the corporate ladder, then everybody else in our way is just another rung to step on. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's like, again, people just become objects in your pursuit of power or of wealth. And so we treat them with anger and wrath and malice if they get in our way. We slander uh, them and talk behind their backs and cut them down in our road to achieving success. Paul says both of these things aren't the problem in and of themselves. It, they're just the symptom of a disordered heart that is worshiping the wrong thing. So what do we do with that? What do we do when we've wrapped our lives in that kind of idolatry, when we've dressed up the ways in which we live and work and play in the world with these kinds of things? How do we leave them behind? Well, Paul says this in verses 9 and 10. He says, you have to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, those things that you've wrapped your life up in, those idolatrous clothes, he says, you got to kick them to the curb. You got to take them off. They're worthless rags. They're junk. You have to put off the old self, and instead you have to put on the new. He says, put on instead the new self. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what I love about what Paul's saying here is he says, look, it's not just enough to put off the old self and to get rid of that old junk. You also have to put something else in its place. And I think that's what's so, uh, I think that's where a lot of Christians uh, stumble in their walk with Jesus is we spend a lot of time focusing on the things that we shouldn't do, right? It's like uh, those, uh, those Ten Commandments, okay? So like I need to honor my mom and dad, but I need to not murder and not steal and not commit adultery and not be covetous and not tell lies and not, and it's good. That's true. You shouldn't do those things, but we never usually consider what do we put in its place? Because if we don't fill that place with something, those are just going to come pouring back in. And so what Paul says is, like, you need to put on the clothes that Jesus has given you. He says, Jesus has given you a new life and a new way of living in the world. It's characterized by all these virtues that we just saw in those verses a moment ago. He says, they need to fill that place. And as I look at that list, I, I, I have to say to myself, man, I, I would love to be that kind of person. I would love to be a person who is indeed compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. A person who is forgiving and loving. But there's a challenge here, right? He says, you know, hey, you have to put on these things. But I still have that kind of like nagging question, how? Because oftentimes I think we try to tackle these like head on, right? Like we wait, you know, I wake up in the morning before I even get out of bed. You know, I open my eyes, and, and, and I'm thinking about the day ahead, and I'm like, you know what, today, today I'm going to be a little bit more patient with my kids. I'm going to be a little bit more patient with my kids, and you want to know how long that lasts? About 60 seconds, because then they come barging into my room, and they jump on me. And now I'm not so patient, and not very kind, because you just woke up the bear, and he's hungry too. I think oftentimes that's what we do. It's just like, oh, I just got to be, like, I love it in Bible studies, right? We get to application time. People are just like, I just got to be more loving. Got to be more loving. Just got to be more loving, more patient, more gracious. And then, like, we get out to the parking lot, and they go, like, peeling out of here and honking at each other. And just like, I guess they need to work a little harder. You don't get these things by addressing them head on, which, again, is why I love that Paul doesn't stop here. He says, look, if you want to develop these virtues, these fruits in your life, then you got to get your worship right. Isn't that interesting? All of the negative, broken things that we experience in our relationships, he says, is all from idolatry, from disordered worship. He says, but if you want these fruits, these virtues in your life, it all goes back to getting your worship right. He says, you need to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And he goes on even further and says this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't it fascinating? He says, hey, if you want to cultivate these virtues in your life, the way you do it is by worshiping. Worshiping rightly. And I love how all-encompassing worship is here. He certainly has in mind us getting together on Sunday morning. And that's part of the reason why I think we as a church continue to hold that up as a value of gathering together because we realize that when we gather together in worship, it's because God desires to do something within us. He desires to give us something to, to reshape us in some way. 
It's part of the reason we talk about cultivating a daily devotional life and time in prayer with God because we know that in devotion time and in prayer with God, God desires to provide us with a gift. It's part of the reason we encourage people to be in small groups and we say things like, you can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. We didn't make that up. It's right here. He says, you need to get together teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Because we know that it's when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name that he's there and he wants to do something. See, this is actually the upside-down nature of Christian worship. Every other religion on the planet says we have to come to worship in order to do things for God. But Christianity says, no, something profound happens in Christian worship because it's there God does something in us. I recently read a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. And this is what he says about what makes Christian worship different. He says, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituate, uh, rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Man, I love that last line. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it's the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. See, the thing that God desires to give us when we gather together in worship, the thing that he desires to give us when we spend time daily studying scripture and in prayer, the thing that he desires to give us when we gather together in small group communities is he desires to give us his grace and his mercy and his love. That worship is ultimately about God transforming our hearts because it's in worship as we sing together, as we read together, as we pray together and talk together, that we remind ourselves of God's character and what he's done for us. That we receive encouragement to continue to grow. That we learn what it really means to live centered lives, lives that are rooted and grounded in God's redeeming love. He says, if you want to be a person who is compassionate and kind, humble and meek, patient and forgiving and loving, then you need to daily, routinely, constantly be setting your hearts and your minds on the one who is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient, forgiving and loving. You need to set your hearts and mind on Jesus. Worship has this mysterious but powerful ability to transform us from the inside out. can't tell you how many times I'm wrestling with something in my daily life and I came to church and heard a pastor preach and it was just like God had something to say right there for that moment. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a small group studying God's word and suddenly somebody in the small group says something that just blows my head off because of how deep and beautiful and pro profound and Christ-centered it is. Can't tell you how many times as I'm sitting there on my knees in prayer and studying God's word in the morning where it just seems to set the trajectory for the rest of my day. Worship does something because God is at work in it transforming us from within. 
It's because it's in worship that God doesn't ask us to come serve him. He says, come so that I might serve you. So that I might do a work within you that you could truly be a centered person. Someone whose life is grounded in what Jesus has done for you. Someone who by looking at my life and what I've done for you will learn to look, live, and love more like me. It's really what it means to be a disciple. Someone who looks, lives, and loves more like Jesus and teaches others to do the same. The only way you can do that is if you're spending time with him. The only way we can do that is if we're walking with him. The only way we do that is by daily being nourished by him and the good news of what he's done for you and for me. And so I think it is appropriate that as we come to the end of this series on being centered, that we look at, so where does the centered life flow from? We've seen what it looks like. Compassion, kindness, patience, meekness, forgiveness, love. But all that flows from spending time with the one who is love, the God who's already given us all these things in Jesus Christ. And so as we bring this series to a close, I think it's only right that we pray. And we ask him to continue that work within us. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that in you we have everything that we could possibly need. That in a world of countless options, you tell us where the center is. It's in you. That we can know that you are with us because you've already come. You've died for us. You rose again and you promised you would be with us to the very end of the age. Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to crave hearing that story each and every day that we be formed and shaped in our worship together, in our homes, and in our small groups, to be people who overflow out of the abundance of what you give. Help us to be centered people, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world into which you send us with that good news. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. You know, one of the ways in which Christians have reminded each other down through the ages of who our God is and what he's done for us is by confessing together various creeds, short statements that point us to the truth of what we hold most dear, point us to the truth of what God has done for us. And so this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me.